Welcome to the very first Critical Frontiers in Engineering Education podcast. I am Dr. Natasha Watts, Associate Director of Online Learning in the College of Engineering at Virginia Tech. Today, my co-host Ramon Benitez and I would like to introduce you to our new series that will cover lectures given throughout the fall semester of 2020. The podcast is produced by Critical Frontiers Research Group, led by Dr. Jenny Case, the Department Head for Engineering Education, and Engineering Online, led by Dr. Glenda Scales. More information about both of those departments can be found in our description. Now, I will turn it over to my co-host, Ramon. Ramon? Hello, yes, thank you. My name is Ramon Benitez. I work with Natasha, and I'm really excited to get going. Thank you, Ramon. So can you tell us a little bit about the Critical Frontiers Research Group? Sure. Critical Frontiers is a group of researchers who are interested in engineering education research or topics closely related to it, um, like higher education or engineering work. Uh, We meet weekly during the academic year to talk about different topics of interest. Um, Members of Critical Frontiers join our conversations from around the world. Um, Some are in China, South Africa, India, Indiana, and even Florida. The cool thing is that we are composed of researchers at different stages. Some members are PhD students in the department, some are advised by Jenny, and others are faculty colleagues here in the College of Engineering, as well as at other universities. We like to invite speakers to join our conversation. So you're about to hear from members from the Critical Frontiers Research Group, as well as some guests joining us from around the world. Chairing today's conversation is Sid Kumar. Sid is a second year graduate student in the Environmental Engineering Master's Program and a recent admit to the Engineering Education PhD Program at Virginia Tech. Thank you, Ramon. So as you can tell, the Critical Frontiers Research Group is a really diverse body. Um, and Ramon is right. We cover a lot of continents, a lot of states. It's a very vibrant group. And so that is part of why Ramon and I wanted to bring you uh, this podcast so everyone can join in our conversations. So we welcome comments as well that you may have. Um, We will post a link with an email address as well in our description. So if you have questions or comments or concerns, you can add that. So Ramon, could you tell us a little bit about what topic we're going to cover today? Certainly. Today we're going to be talking about PhD advising or just graduate advising in general. And you know, PhD advising happens to be a very complex topic. You see, as a new graduate student, I wasn't really sure about what advising was or what it should look like, or even what it was supposed to be. So when I started grad school, I didn't have any expectations when it came to finding a graduate advisor or really knowing how to go about it. Honestly, I felt as though I was thrown into the whole thing, expecting to understand how to deal with this new relationship. Yeah, it's, it's a very foreign topic to be uh, thrilled to. So anyone who's in the stream of, I think, research and starting their PhD, are, they're going to really relate with this. I, I think as well as seasoned advisors, um, Dick is a very lively character that we're going to hear from. And he gives a lot of details about how you should frame up your mindset as you start your PhD. But also, I think he gives a lot of insight for advisors on how to Think about, you know, when students are starting out in their research career, you know, how to help them along with that. And so, Ramon, who are we going to hear from today? Do you want to talk a little bit about who Dick is? So I already mentioned who Sid is. So the second person you're going to be hearing from is Richard Gunstone, but he um, insists that we call him by a less formal name of Dick. Dick Gunstone joins us from Australia Relevant to our conversation today, he has advised, or as they say in the British system, supervised over 35 students 
One of those students being Jenny, my advisor. Gunstold holds a bachelor's degree of science, a bachelor's of education, and a PhD from different universities in Australia. We have more information on Dick Gunstone in the description for this podcast. Thank you, Ramon. So to just summarize, this is the Critical Frontiers and Engineering Education podcast. This is our very first podcast. We're going to cover a series of podcasts brought to you by the Critical Frontiers Research Group and Engineering Online, which are both a part of the Department of Engineering at Virginia Tech. Dick is probably one of the most lively people I have ever heard speak via Zoom. Um, So I'm really excited to bring this to everyone today and I hope you enjoyed it as much as Ramona and I did. If you have any questions, again, um, there are gonna be an email in our description. We encourage you to join in the conversation. This is our very first leap into this world. So um, enjoy, thank you. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to our first Critical Frontier session um, and welcome to everyone else that is joining us today. Uh, Like I said, my name is Sid Kumar and just a quick FYI, this is my first time sharing any sort of presentation, talk or meeting, so apologies in advance if I do mess up anything. Um, I'm a new PhD student in engineering education. In fact, I'm just five days new into this program. Um, And I've been given the pleasure today of introducing someone who I think is fair to say somewhat of like an academic legend in our field, in all honesty. Uh, Professor Richard Gunstone is here with us today from Monash University in Australia. Uh, Quick fun fact, for those of you who may not know, he is actually uh, Jenny's former advisor. Um, Richard has extensive research and consultancy experience in teaching, learning, curriculum, assessment, teacher development, you name it, he's probably done it. Um, He's been an incredibly influential science researcher uh, in this field. And honestly, if I had to list all of his awards and accomplishments he's been given, I think we'd need a lot more than just this one Zoom call. Um, As Jenny said, one thing Richard and I actually have in common, apart from our academic interests, is that we are both from Australasian soils, and I'm from New Zealand. So as you know, as you know from the invite, it will be briefly talking to us about things like uh, the value of following your own dissertation topic, um, linking your passions with your emerging education interests. Some new tips uh, for PhD students like myself, how to make the most of working with your supervisor and just uh, things like that in general. Uh, But without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Richard Gunstone. Thank you, Sid. Um, I'm very happy to be called Dick and I am an informal person. Now, enough of that. Jenny asked me to talk around some points to do with tips for new PhD students, the value of following your passions, linking the passions with your educational research, finding your voice and making the most of your supervisor. Uh, I'm going to do that. The points I want to raise in the next 20 minutes don't neatly fit into those categories, but rather spread across them. So I'm going to talk briefly about a number of things not under those headings. Um, All of the things I'm going to say uh, have underpinning them one of four central issues which rather govern a lot of my thinking about research and teaching that I've spent my lifetime with. 
One is context is a determining causal variable. I know nothing of your context. As a consequence, some of what I say is certain to be irrelevant. My context is different to yours in the supervisor-supervisee relationship because the English mode of doctoral supervision, which is what I have lived with, is one with sole or two at most advisors, no committees. I've also been fortunate to work in a highly collegial context. Well, at least that's my story. Jenny can give uh, a more informed opinion when I'm not here. Uh, and almost exclusively at Monash. Not totally, but almost exclusively. My view is that most PhD supervisors are most strongly influenced by their own experience of being supervised in their PhD research. There's an unfortunate lack of real professional development for the particular form of very different teaching that is PhD supervision. And so as a consequence, a lot of super, well, some supervisors I'm sure far fewer of the junior tech, but some supervisors tend to not learn from their past experience and they can be mildly problematic. While doing a third thing that's general context, while doing a PhD is still a learning exercise, obviously, it'd be an extraordinary waste of time, energy, commitment if you didn't learn, but it's a profoundly different teacher-student learning context than any you've experienced before, particularly because the demands on you to be a self-directed learner are now greater than at any time in your previous learning experience. I'll come back to that briefly in a moment. Um, and finally, um, with serious apologies for my egocentricity. Uh, I'm, a, I believe Gunston's second law is significant for trying to interpret what I'm going to say. Gunston's second law says, nothing in education works for everyone or all the time. So some of what I say will be irrelevant. Your choice is what's going to determine that, not what I assert. Okay. Some things I think you need to come to grips with, hints for being a PhD student. One, you need to try to understand your own learning. And that's a more critical issue than it has been in the past. Because now, as I said before, you are expected to be more self-directed than ever in your past. That's hard if you don't quite know how you are going about it. So. One way to do that's to talk with people, of course. Uh, complementary with that, and certainly not in opposition to it, the notion that you are self-directed now, is you need networks. Desperately, you need networks. 
they will be networks like this one. There will be networks solely of students. There will be informal networks. They, depending on your context, they may be networks of other staff. You may be involved with a research project with multiple investigators, but the networks are critical for a whole raft of things. And if you, if you have trouble forming networks, you need to seek help with that. Don't assume you do it by yourself. I think personally, um, some people, some supervisors will disagree with this. I think it's really important to find out things about your supervisor. Ask your supervisor, gently and nicely direct questions that are important for you to understand how they see the supervision process. Talk to other people, but in doing that, don't ever take a single data source as being your only source. Just as when you're researching, you need multiple data sources for any significant variable. The same is true for trying to understand the person with whom you are going to work most intensively for a long period of time. See your PhD as the start of a research career, not as an end in itself. It is not an end point. It's not some grand culmination in the way in which is sometimes represented in literary fiction. That's a nonsense. And to have that view of it anyway is to diminish yourself. Even if you do not plan to be an academic researcher when you finish, which would be unusual, I think, even if you do not, your whole experience will be better if you assume that you are beginning a research career. A central issue in that is what I'm, this is terribly, terribly corny. What I have called for a long time, the burr in your foot. What's the aggravation that you're trying to understand which causes you to get into this in the first place? That's a really central thing to come to grips with and to let be the passion that drives you. When you applied for entry into the PhD program at Virginia Tech, I imagine you had to write something on an application form about what you wanted to do. Okay, you need to spend time taking that and abandoning it or working with it and discussing with your networks, your supervisor, to clarify the burr in your foot, to get a sense of the passion which causes you to take this step. And then I have great faith in trying to describe that passion, that burr in the foot in plain language. Academics are extraordinarily good at hiding behind jargon. And sometimes they hide a failure to understand behind jargon. Um, physicists are really, really bad at that. I'm an old physicist. Uh, ask a physicist to tell you what potential difference is if you don't believe me and tell them you want to know without mathematics and they are dead in the water because mathematics is the jargon behind which they hide. I. This is 
rather corny like the burr in the foot. I, I am a great believer in a thing I've called for a while the grandparent question. You really know what you're going to do in your PhD when you can answer the grandparent question. Because it's, I'm a grandparent, so I can be rude about grandparents. Because it's your grandparent, you can't use jargon. Uh, and because their concentration spans getting minimal, you've only got three sentences. This is really hard to be able to get the essence of what you want to do. And that process of translating from what's on your application form to what's my passion, the burr in the foot, to the grandparent question is going to take you some time. But it's time well invested because coming to grips in that way with what you want to do and why you want to do it saves you time later on when you're trying to take your data and make sense of it. If you do, it's possible to collect data for a PhD and not really be sure what the hell you're doing. That's very dangerous, trust me. One of the things that characterizes this different relationship in teaching and learning in my head is that when I have supervised PhD students, I have assumed from day one that two things will happen they will fairly quickly know more about the eventual research topic they settle on than I do. And two, therefore, they will teach me things that I value. I have believed since about my fifth PhD student, I took a while to come to this, that I have failed a student if they passed the degree, but I have learned nothing. And on those grounds, I have failed one student, even though they have a Monash PhD. And that remains an aggravation for me because no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't get them to move beyond the narrow confines of the, the protection of what was already known, which is really sad. It diminished them no end. Um, as you talk and have conversations and frame and reframe and spend time to really understand what you want to do, um, take your choice of one of this set of aphorisms to be a guide for you. William Wewell, a 19th century mathematician, philosopher, the first person to write extensively about the nature of science and da dee da dee da did write at one point, every failure is a stem to success. To be more recent, Michelle Obama is fond of saying failure is the key to success. Literally, literally, I promise this morning, that is my morning, a Twitter feed from uh, that is devoted to the wonder of physics, I received a picture which had on it an acronym. The acronym was F-A-I-L, which stands for First Attempt in Learning. Failure is a really significant part of the process but only provided one thing, 
Uh, I have been arguing for a long time that nobody learns from experience. People learn by reflecting on experience. And if you have experience and let it wash over you and expect learning to be by osmosis, then it won't happen. You need to come to grips with the experience and reflect on it and make sense of it. The same with failure. Failure is a powerful road to learning, but not if you fail to reflect on it. You need to analyze it. Think, why did people not understand what I was saying? except that you might be culpable here and explore how you were mounting the argument. Why has my hypothesis fallen on hard times? What have I ignored here, etc., etc.? All of the things I've said to that point could have been framed in terms of finding your voice. Finding your voice and growing as an autonomous researcher, which is the end point of doing a PhD, are really, really similar things. And in the absence of that growth, you won't find your voice. Um, I'll just finish with a few thoughts about making the most of working with your supervisor. This is complex and difficult because it really does depend enormously on the supervisor. And different supervisors have different approaches and different assumptions. Trying to find out how your supervisor thinks about these things is an important beginning point. I think it's also important to try to get a sense of what breadth the supervisor sees in responsibility. One of my colleagues, now retired, was always fond of saying, in the process of actually writing your dissertation, everyone reaches the stage where they feel like throwing it out the window and following it. It's important to know if your supervisor is interested in engaging with you with those sorts of emotional issues. One of the things that characterizes many PhDs in professional fields, and in my experience in education, all of them, is that people are mid-career professionals. They haven't been on some sort of conveyor belt, which went degree, honours, doctorate. So their life is both more interesting and more complex. And so emotional hurdles become more likely to occur it's really important to have someone to talk to about those things. And sometimes that will be your supervisor. As part of making the most of your supervisor, it's really important to not see your supervisor as your only support. Um, it may sound paradoxical, but having networks actually enables you to make greater use of your supervisor because you have other ideas besides yours. You have other reactions besides yours to discuss with the supervisor. And that expands both their value to you and the ways you can make use of them. To make the most of your supervisor, do not expect your supervisor to be an expert in the specifics of your research. That 
may or may not happen. It can be both bad news as well as good news, depending on how the supervisor sees their expertise. But their value to you is not in being able to, off the top of their head, tell you every single critical reference you must go and read in the next week in order to sketch out your literature review. Their value to you is in their capacity to be critically analytical of your ideas, to be helpful in your development. Uh, if you looked at my history, you would say, I would say that because of the diversity of areas in which I've supervised, but I say it because it's a passionate belief. Don't look for a supervisor to know everything. You're going to teach them things they don't know, remember? And finally, a couple of really simple things, and then let's see what questions you have. Um, this has to do with how I understand my own learning. I accept that. Uh, one, write it down. You have a bright idea, write it down. If it looks tomorrow totally stupid, okay, don't throw it away yet. If it still looks stupid in a week's time, throw it away, but otherwise organize it and file it. It's, there's, through the process of doing a PhD, you will construct an enormous spectrum of ideas of your own and it's easy to lose them. So take steps to not lose them. When you're an old man like me, you forget things. Even when you're young, you forget things. Okay, um, let's see what questions we have said. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Dick. Um, Chris has a question. So Chris, if you'd like to go ahead. Sure, thanks. Uh, sometimes I am the first person. <laughs> anyway, um, so thinking about that, how you opened up, you're talking about our context. In my mind, one of the important like aspects of like our U.S. context is the corporate corporatization of the university. Like, where you know, not only is the university kind of changing, like some things seep into how its mission changes, um, and like the services that it performs. Maybe they're not necessarily to the public, but and also its structure changes. Um, you know, more focused on hierarchy and the roles of the graduate students change and the roles of the advisors change. Um, so I'm, what I'm curious about is how the role of the, you know, advisor as a teacher and the role of the graduate student as, you know, a budding autonomous researcher or a self-directed learner, how that kind of ideal relationship or role, those two roles kind of interact with or contend with this other potential yep. roles that they can occupy where the advisor is an employer and the student is a worker. Um, because I mean, we all have GTAs and we all do work. Um, and you know, those, that role also at, at sometimes it's, uh, it conflicts with this role of self-directed learner. Yep. Um, Yours is not the only country on the planet where the corporatization of tertiary education is a major, 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 major problem. Um, and I would argue it's probably worse in Australia because Australian universities have for 25 years, public universities had the lowest percentage of their recurrent 
budget coming from government, even though they are public, we're now down to well below 40%. We've got to earn the rest or sack staff. Now, that does corporatizing things to you, let me tell you. Um, there is inevitably conflict. And the honest answer is I have no helpful response. How one responds will be a function very much of, in my view, of the supervisor. So some supervisors will put up walls around this, as I hope I did on the grounds that it is time enough for you to be really deeply concerned about this extraordinarily problematic issue when you have achieved your primary purpose. Maybe when the thesis is in its final draft, then is the time for us to sit down and discuss this issue and what it means for how you can go about forging a career. This is my approach. One of the things that worries me deeply about it, which is not something I would want to sit down and talk with a beginning doctoral student with, although I'm about to mention it, um, there are growing numbers of scholars of higher education who would argue that the fundamental notion of a university is undergoing transformation from which it will not return because the corporatization is such a widespread issue. Um, the government of Australia, um, the Australian university system is a national one. For example, the government of Australia describes university education as another form of refrigerator. You know, it's in that, it's something you acquire for personal gain. We have a government that doesn't see it as contributing to society. Now, it's really hard to make much of that except live with it or move on. That's, that's a really dismal and pessimistic answer. I'm sorry, Chris, but uh, I, that's don't, fine. I don't think there is a logical way to deal with it because it's fundamentally about the attitudes of government and society. And so beyond the control of the university. I'm also remote from it. I've been, in theory, retired for 15 years. I, I haven't had anything to do with being a dean for 15 years. Other people have worries about the corporatization. Now, that's selfish, but realistic. Jackie, yeah, I do have a bit more of a generic question. During, uh, during your talk, um, I don't think you explicitly said this, but I, I think you kind of mentioned how sometimes we must kind of really understand uh as to like what's our why as to why we're doing all of this um and so i'd just like to understand what was your why and what actually brought you into stem education sure. in, the, in the first place i had a career in secondary school teaching i gradually came to the view that i was doing pretty well as a physics teacher but I had this embarrassing, consistent problem that my students thought I was doing pretty well, but they didn't still, still didn't bloody well understand concepts. That was point one. And point two, I became heavily involved in the Professional Association of Science Teachers 
and came to the same conclusions about our attempts to provide professional development for teachers. So I had these two burrs in my foot, which were not unrelated, which are what drove me into a research career and had me moving into a university system away from a job that I loved. So I moved into a job where I taught still but also was able to start exploring these burrs in the foot. Thank you. Yeah, I have a question. Yes, Guy. Uh, um, thank you uh, so much for your sharing experience for our new PhD student. Uh, since I'm, uh, I'm an international student from China and in our country, um, we are taught that uh, the total difference between the undergraduate student and the graduate student is graduate student, especially a PhD student, should learn how to think critical and how to think independently. Um, but, but I think um, since graduate students will have a, a supervisor, but one supervisor should guide several students at the same time. So I think not the responsible for the supervisor to uh, know uh, or give some feedback to their students. Uh, on the contrary, it is our students' responsibilities to try to communicate with our supervisors more actively in, in the daily time but but in china it will um it will be critic uh critic you uh said that said that you you should you should to think by yourself or try to find some solutions by yourself or do some literature review by yourself and and so but i think it is better to communicate with your super own supervisors more uh, frequently. So I will feel a little confused about this dilemma. And uh, I would like to ask how to balance the two sides. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. No, no, no I'm <laughs> it's a really important and complex question uh, and um, my answer may not be helpful uh, while I've had a lot of experience with international students from a variety of cultural contexts including from Asia as it happens since because of my age as much as anything I have not worked with the Chinese student I've worked with from students from countries in Asia that have not had the same, uh, that have been much more freewheeling about what it is that a student does. So, the only way that I think, I might have a different answer in a week's time, but I think the only way to approach that problem is to accept the cultural context in which you are enrolled. Yeah. And so 
take all the opportunities you can to engage with supervisor and other students and then in in the background think about these other issues but if you try to if you try to reshape the context in which you are enrolled so that it fits this other perspective i think you will not satisfy the other perspective and you will lose the opportunities that are to be gained in the context in which you are enrolled yeah. that's unhelpful i'm sorry no i think it's helpful <laughs> thank you um i think i think dion had his hand up um and i think after that i think rob has a question as well that was lost in the chat so we go dion and then um Thank you so much. I'm sorry for the background. Um, we have what you call load shedding, which means we don't have electricity for two hours. So I'm in the car trying to charge the device, which I'm talking to. But in any case, I wanted to find out, um, in your discussion, I assumed when you're talking about the supervisor or the PhD advisor, you were speaking in a scenario where there's only one supervisor for one student. So now what happens if a student has two or more supervisors but in terms of finding out things about them, that's one. And two, um, when their opinions about an idea that you have are differing, what happens in that scenario? How should you then approach um, that, I don't know, that, that concept or that, that, that point? How do you then move forward when your two supervisors have opinions that are different? And also, how do you then gain information about two supervisors that you're going to work with over longer periods of time? Um, I'm going to be completely unhelpful, I'm sorry. One, I have no real experience on which to draw. Uh, and because even when I have worked with another person to jointly supervise, it has been in the context that I described quite deliberately as highly collegial. So it's been with someone I knew and there has been concern that we would be able to work together before this ever began. So I have no experience upon which to draw. I would hope that there is some, some systemic feature of your university which does not put the responsibility for resolving that upon you. There should be some systemic feature which allows, which gives the responsibility to the department or to the faculty to resolve this issue rather than assuming the student who is relatively powerless in the face of the sort of disagreement you're describing, rather than assuming they can handle it. And I have no advice if there is no system that takes the responsibility, because a student who is being pulled in two different directions by two people whom I'm going to characterize from the way you describe the situation as obstinate, uh, you cannot solve. The rest of the department haven't been able to solve it from the sort of thing you're describing. So a student is not going to be able to. Um, that's, that answer only has the merit of being honest, Dion. I'm sorry. 
No, thank you so much. Thanks for the honor. Thanks. Uh, I think Rob, I think you had a question uh, that you posted earlier on the chat. So, um, which one? I made a comment. Is it the one about the so framing, reframing the social utility of educational research? I think. Is that it? So, I, my thought was what if the burr in the foot for doing a PhD is that you want to precisely research the relationship between social change and educational reform? And those issues, of course, require that you foreground and think critically first about the political economy of the changing university. Um, and again, I really appreciate the comments about the, the different contexts uh, in which this you know, higher education work happens and in which um, you know, university systems around the world are changing. But I just, I, I guess the question is, how, do you, how would you suggest that, you, that researchers interested in things like political economy the phrase, the corporatization of the university came up earlier. I would just say more broadly, the political economy of higher education. How, how would you suggest that researchers reframe that interest in, in ways? Um, and what's the social utility, in other words, of research that, that puts political economy in that context inside, inside the frame of, of its research object? I I suggest that that will be completely a function of the supervisors with whom you're able to engage. That, that the success of such a study is not a function of anything political, it's a function of the expertise and predilections of the supervisor. It just becomes even more critical than usual that there is an empathetic match between topic and supervisor, much more so than if it is about strengthening concrete. So it's, it's more complex, but the principle is the same, I would argue. Uh, I'm not aware, I, I'm sure there is, I'm sure there is. I'm not aware of any university which would refuse to admit a student who wanted to investigate such an issue because there are, there are significant parts of any university I'm aware of, of staff who are disturbed about this as much as you are. Uh, and academic freedom is not yet totally lost. It's struggling, but it's not yet totally lost. Uh, Jenny might want to comment on that. This is an area Jenny knows more about than I do. I'll leave others to open some questions, <laughs> but I will speak later. <laughs> Thanks, Dick, for that uh, provocation. Um, so I see yes here yeah, yeah, has a question. Hi, Dick. Um, thanks so much for the talk. It's about two o'clock in the afternoon here. We just, I'm also a physics teacher at the moment, so um, a lot of what you said actually resonates with me. And um, I was actually feeling quite drained, but after your talk, it kind of invigorated me. So thanks for that. Um, my question is, so I'm... I don't know if you remember, I'm starting, well, I've started now with the program, so I'm at the beginning of the journey. And I thought it was quite um, interesting when you said that you should view the, you should view this experience as a journey, not look at it, um, look at it in terms of the end goal. And I think it's, it is something that, you know, you hear all the time in terms of, um, you know, people always say life is about the journey and not the end goal of it. I just wanted to know if you could maybe elaborate a bit more on that in terms of how it makes you experience better to not view it as, because I mean, with some people, it's easier to look at things in a sprint or shorter goals rather than viewing it as a lifelong journey that will go on forever. 
was wondering if you could just elaborate on that, on what you said, um, what you meant by that in terms of the context of doing a PhD and being a researcher. Uh, yeah, um, certainly. The, it is tempting because, because it is a learning task of greater magnitude and greater demand than you have experienced before. It's tempting to see it as an end point. And there is, um, very appropriately, there is a profound sense of joy when you actually hand the bloody thesis in, yes. But it, it is about the whole purpose of doing a PhD for me is about learning how to become an autonomous, self-directing, independent researcher. And if you see it, if you see the thesis as an endpoint and nothing else will happen, you run the risk of several things. One, of not making the most of the learning opportunities that occur. Two, of what this this sometimes happens of wanting to polish and repolish and repolish the document because it's not yet perfect so it's not yet fit to be the end point um and and that's self-defeating and purposeless because nothing that you write will be perfect in two years time I'm sorry to tell you, but that's well, that's a good thing because you learn and you see more and you look at it and you think, oh, I didn't quite have that fully explained, etc. Um, it, it diminishes the experience to see it as an end point in itself. It diminishes the development of your critical thinking to pick up the point that you raised, I think because you have a goal which in itself is not sufficient as to demand you keep being critically analytical of what's going on. That, that's a rambling response, but it, it's possible to see it as an end point. It's just very much lesser if you do. Yeah, thanks. That actually, that, yeah, it does actually help a lot if you've elaborated and did answer the question. So thanks a lot. Um, Dirk, you, you also mentioned that there is, uh, there is a lack of competence in PhD supervision um, and some supervisors just don't learn uh, from their past experiences. Um, and it's an interesting question to ask with uh, my supervisor on call as well. Uh, but let's say you're a PhD student and you're a couple of years down, uh, down your road and you, as a student, you start to realize that this is directly starting to actually affect you. So as a student, what are you actually supposed to do? Uh, if you're a couple of years down, I desperately hope you've got other networks that you've developed. Other PhD students. PhD students in totally different areas. What, whatever opportunities arise for networks. Time spent talking about your thinking and your work provided you're reasonably analytic about it, that time is not wasted. Having to articulate is the beginnings of enhancing your understanding. Having to write it is a further development. Yeah. 
two years in, if you haven't got networks, then I don't think anyone can help you. Um, the institution may well foster networks, I don't know. Um, uh, it's not helpful to talk about the things we did slash do at Monash, but there are ways in which you can enhance networks and provide opportunities and give them support. And yeah, Jenny participated in all of that. She knows all of the sorts of things we did, we do there. That, that's one of the many reasons why those other networks are utterly critical. You can't rely on just one person. Thank you. If anyone else has a question, just feel free to unmute yourself and ask away. Hi, Dick. I have a question. Um, I'm Maya. Um, I'm also a first year PhD student. Um, so you mentioned that PhD, we shouldn't, we shouldn't really view PhD as a, a destination, more as a beginning of a journey. And when we start our, um, that, that small aspect of our PhD in the, in the big journey, um, <clears throat> is it important, in your opinion, to have a direction? in terms of um, where do you want to go after your PhD? Um, you, you talked about having, um, uh, you know, to know your why, to know the burn your foot. Um, but does that, in, does that change during the course of the PhD? Is it important to have, to be open-minded, um, to have the why's change or, is it um, important to, to, you know, have that direction and be focused on that? And so, I mean, you've guided a lot of students, so you've seen um, how things might, you know, vary from student to student, but generally what, what, um, what's important when we uh, pursue a PhD? What's important is not, uh, from my point of view, not to have ongoing planning in terms of how and where you'll work because that's so problematic in at any time particularly in this day and age what's important is to understand and evolve and develop your passion um i i had a clear notion of why i went into academia at the beginning of 1974 by the time i finished my thesis it was profoundly more informed and had moved significantly in a direction in which the field moved quite dramatically because it was in the course of my PhD that the explosion of alternative conceptions research began. So where I started was pretty pointless way to try and understand physics learning. So that happened, but I still wanted to understand more about how we could improve the conceptual understanding of students. I still wanted to understand. So the burrs and the foot at a broad level stayed the same, but the refinement has never stopped. So I've spent, I've spent more time in the last 15 years trying to explore the ways in which the concepts of direct current electricity, to take an example, are elaborated and understood by textbook authors and by university lecturers than I have in exploring students' understanding. So 
the primary burr and the foot is the same, but the secondary issues, the elaboration of it is totally different. Does it make sense? Yes, thank you. Um, I see Lizel has a question and we also have four minutes left. So after Lizel's question, we'll just uh, maybe have a final question or just do some final comments. Uh, so Lizel, would you like to say your question? Um, hi, Prof. I just want to ask, um, I'm always having, I always find so many things to read. And while I'm reading one thing, then I'm already seeing a new thing to read. And um, I'm always in that position. So do you have any guidelines on making decisions on what to read first so that you don't um, constantly um, have that problem of jumping around? I'm glad we're finishing with an easy question. Um, <laughs> uh, at one level, no, I don't. But at another, if you have a sense of the broad thrust, the passion, the burr in the foot, whatever, then at least spend some time looking at substantive reviews of research that other people have done. So that it may help, it may not, to look at the ways in which other people have synthesized and made choices and decided what mattered. That may not help, but it at least will give you someone else's opinion about what matters. That does help. So you're looking at um, sort of a summary of different yeah. people. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, if someone writes a review of research in the area that you're looking at, they have made decisions and prioritized and given emphases. So this is someone else's take on what matters in the existing research. That's true. Thank you. That, that does help. Um, all right, guys, as unfortunately all the formal time uh, we've been given to um, so I'd just like to firstly um, thank Richard for thank thank you for making the time to talk to us. Uh, give us all of your amazing insights. Um, thanks especially for taking out the time on your Friday night. Um, so if you just join me in giving him a virtual Zoom applause. <laughs> All right. Well, that concludes our podcast for today. Um, I want to thank everyone for joining us um, and listening and hanging out with us today. A big shout out to Dr. Jenny Case for leading this group, for organizing today's speaker. Um, it was really wonderful. I know I have a lot of great takeaways, a lot of wisdom, um, and I hope everyone else did too. Um, I hope this entices you to join us the rest of the semester as we have a lot of great up and coming speakers. Um, and again, thank you for coming on the journey of our very first recording of Critical Frontiers in Engineering Education. We look forward to our listeners next week. Um, everyone have a great day, a great week, a great month. Um, I will see you next time. Bye.